If you want to learn how to do something, one of the best ways to do it is just learn from a master. That's why in the economy of yesteryear, there were internships. A soon-to-be blacksmith would spend a few years with the established blacksmith and learn the trade. This is why we have internships now. Soon-to-be engineer oftentimes has an internship to complete his course of study and to make him a little bit less engineerish and a little bit more real-worldish, if that's possible, with an engineer, and we know that it's not. <laughs> it just makes sense. If you really want to learn something, you've got to learn it from a master. With that in mind, I think it's significant for us to observe that in Luke 11, Jesus was praying. There's nothing particularly significant about Jesus praying. Jesus was a man of prayer. He often retreated to spend time with his father in prayer. What is significant is that it's after Jesus prayed that his disciples asked, Lord, teach us to pray. Think about that for just a minute. Put yourself in the disciples' shoes. What would it be like to hear the divine Son of God pray? Can't you imagine listening and even if you were trying to give him privacy, you'd just kind of find yourself inching ever closer to just overhear this conversation. Don't you think it might put a hunger in your heart to know and communicate with your heavenly Father like he communicates with your heavenly Father. You have the same Father. I think it would. And so it makes perfect sense that after Jesus prays, the disciples say, Lord, teach us. I want to pray like Jesus. I want to know God like you do, Jesus. I want the kind of intimacy that you've got, Jesus. And Jesus' answer is what we call the Lord's Prayer. And so in our sermon series on prayer, it just seems like we shouldn't miss the opportunity to be helped by one of the most famous of prayers that we, in fact, pray every week together. So would you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. And as you do, I, I want to encourage you, my desire is for our heart posture as we approach this text to be simply this. Lord, teach us to pray. Let me give you some background on what's going on in Matthew 6. It's a part of a bigger chunk of Scripture known as the Sermon on the Mount. It runs from chapter 5 to chapter 7. And the Sermon on the Mount is really talking about what life as the citizens, as, as, is really talking about what life as citizens in the kingdom looks like. The norms, if you will, of the life of a Christian. It covers lots of things. Heart attitudes. Ethical standards. Spiritual disciplines. And in verse 5, our Lord begins to address the spiritual discipline of prayer. So pick up with me in verses 5 through 8. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. 
Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Jesus begins by instructing us on what not to do. Don't be like the hypocrites. He's talking about the Pharisees. These were the guys who loved to pray in order to be seen. They wanted other people to see how spiritual they were, and so they would make it a point to pray in public places and to pray in such a way that Everybody within earshot would know clearly how spiritual or spiritual sounding they were. Jesus says, don't do that. Now note, please note, this is not saying don't pray in public. Jesus prayed in public. The church throughout her history has prayed together in public worship on Sunday morning. It's not saying don't have a time of corporate prayer together as Christians on Sundays or Wednesdays or in home group. It's saying when you pray, don't pray with the motivation in order to be heard by others. Pride can do one of two things in a time of public prayer. One, it can lead some to pray in order to be heard and in order to be recognized and respected and seen. Two, it can lead others not to pray at all because they don't want to be heard. Anybody here afraid to pray on Wednesday night out of fear that it won't come out feeling spiritual or sounding spiritual? Every single one of you should raise your hands, but you're not going to. I know you. I want to tell you, don't be overly focused on that. In fact, don't be focused on how it comes out or what others are going to think as you pray. That's actually part of what Jesus is getting at here. Don't worry about what others are thinking as you pray. Don't let pride hinder you from speaking up. Pride could cause you to want to speak up in order to be heard, but pride could also cause you to stay silent when you ought to be heard and you ought to bless your brothers and sisters in prayer. So pray when we have times of corporate worship. Pray. Don't hide. The second thing Jesus tells us here is don't think that heaping up empty phrases, spiritual lingo, if you will, is going to get you anywhere. Look at verse 7. Don't heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do. They think they'll be heard by their many words. So prayer isn't about having the right phrases or the exact words that somehow break through the heavens and reach the ears of the Almighty. It's it's, it's not as though you've got to say the exact right thing or the exact true thing or the exact biblical thing in order for God to hear your prayer. It's more about your heart posture than your exact words. And I think that's a tremendous encouragement. Who here is afraid to pray even on your own? 
Because you just don't know if you're going to quite do it right. You're afraid you're going to get it wrong. And God is up there saying to you, well, you obviously can't get your thoughts straight, and that's not biblical. I want you to call me back when you have some semblance of good theology. No. God's not like that. In fact, he's promised in Romans 8.26 that the Spirit intercedes for us when we don't know how to pray. And so you don't have to worry about how exactly you say things because verse 8 says, your father already knows what you need before you ask him. Now on one hand, that's very encouraging. He knows what I'm trying to get at. He knows my heart. He knows my situation. Okay. I can unburden myself in prayer. But if he already knows those things, some of you might ask, well, why why do we pray if he already knows? I want to say two things in response to that question. One right up front, and then one will come as we look at the text. The first thing is this. What this verse begins to reveal is prayer is more than us uploading our requests to God. Prayer is actually something God uses to orient us, our hearts and our lives, to be more focused on Him. So prayer is more than us uploading our requests to God. Prayer is actually more about God using our prayers to cause us to be molded and shaped more about Him and His purposes. So, to that end, let's look at verses 9 and 10. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does Jesus say up front? To whom do we pray? Our Father. Church, there's so much we could learn from that one phrase alone. I want us to consider it for just a minute. Number one, Jesus didn't teach us to pray to my Father but to our Father. And it actually stays that way throughout the prayer. It's our daily bread. It's our sins. It's our temptations. Not just mine. Why is that? Because life as a Christian is familial. Listen to 1 John 5.1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves everyone who has been born of Him. John's saying here that everybody who loves the Father... Loves the Father's family. He's talking about the church. The church is the hour in this prayer. And so we, the church, are praying to our Father. We, the church, are asking for our needs to be met. 
our sins to be forgiven. Help with our temptations, not just mine. The Christian life is an us life. The Christian life is a church life. That's why we oftentimes talk about your world. Is, imagine it like a, like a wheel with a hub and spokes, and the church should be at the very center of our lives. And everything else should somehow connect to that. Church shouldn't be like one spoke off here, something I do every now and again, or the people I think about every now and again. Church should actually be the hub and everything else is connected. So we pray to our Father. And we pray to our Father. God is our Father. To help you get a sense of the magnitude of this, I just want you to to observe something. This is Matthew 6. This is the rest of the Bible before Matthew 6. Matthew 6 and beyond before Matthew 6. The thickness of the pages there, up until the point where your finger is, no one addressed God as Father. The fatherhood of God is not a central theme in the Old Testament. Where Father does occur with respect to God, it's by way of analogy or description, but not in the form of personal address. Think about this. Think about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They did not address him as Father. Think about Moses. He did not address him as father. Think about the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hezekiah. They did not address him as father. It almost seems inappropriate for us to call the creator and king of all the universe, Abba, father, dad. But he invites us to do that. That's amazing. And it's even more amazing if you see that it's not as though God begrudgingly accepts this relationship. God's posture towards you, believer, is not, okay, because Jesus died for you, I agree to forgive your sins begrudgingly because you don't deserve it. And furthermore, I will agree to hear your prayer. That is not his posture towards you. Realize, believer, that he loved you and thus sent Jesus to die for you. He sent Jesus to die in order that you might have the privilege of calling him Father, in order that he might gather you up into his lap as it were and hold you and hear you. The gospel, Jesus dying and rising, was God's idea to save those upon whom he'd set his love from before the foundation of the world. So it's not begrudging. Believer, have you considered the unbelievable privilege that you have to be able to fully unburden yourself of all your secret thoughts and worries and troubles and sins with your Father who is in heaven? 
just offload them. Who else can you do that with? You can't do that with anybody. Even if you have the closest friendship with someone, it would not be helpful for you to do that. But you can go to your father. What a privilege. What a help. What a comfort. He's your father. And you can go to him. Well, what do we say? What do we say when we go to him? Let's look at the first three requests and read with me beginning in the second half of verse 9. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want you to notice right off the bat that these prayers are about God. They're not about us. They're about God's name and God's kingdom and God's will. So, what does it mean to pray, hallowed be your name? To hallow is kind of a funny word. We don't use the word anymore. But it means to sanctify or to make holy or to consider holy. The same verb is used in 1 Peter 3.15 when Peter says, in your hearts, honor, that's the same word, honor Christ the Lord. If you're reading in the King James here, it says, sanctify here. If I were to put this just into my own words, kind of the gist of this request, it would go something like this. Lord, make your name great. It is great. Now make your name great. Make it more great in my life. Help me to to reverence you more. To treasure you more. To adore you more. And Lord, make your name great in the lives of others, in the lives of my brothers and sisters at RGC, in the lives of those that we come into contact with on a daily basis. Lord, you are great and you deserve to be praised and so cause your name to be reverenced with the reverence that is due to your name. Cause your name to be magnified. Cause people to bow down at the name of Jesus and worship before your throne instead of ignore you or mock you or set you off to the side and make me more about that than I am about all the other things I'm about. Are you getting the idea? It's really a prayer asking God to make his glory known. And the second request is a lot like it. Bring your kingdom, Lord. Bring your kingdom. I think this has implications for the present, and I think it has implications for the future. The kingdom has actually come in the person and work of Jesus. So when he came, he actually inaugurated his kingdom. It has begun. He is ruling and reigning. The kingdom of Christ is now, but the fullness of the kingdom is not now. Theologians call this the already not yet of the kingdom. It's here, Jesus is ruling in the hearts of his people, but it's not fully and finally here. That day comes when Jesus returns. 
So, what does it mean to pray for his kingdom to come? I think the accent of the petition is to pray for Jesus to come back. Lord, I long for the day when I will no longer see through a glass dimly and understand you partly. I long for the day when I will see you face to face. I long for the day when I'll be with you. When I won't struggle anymore with sin. When my joy will be complete because I'll be with you. I long for the day when my race will be run and the last battle here is through. Oh Lord, bring your kingdom. Come Lord Jesus. Just a quick question. Do you really want Jesus to come back or would you prefer for him to wait? Would you prefer to wait for your child to see this milestone or that milestone? Would you prefer to wait until you've taken that dream vacation you've always thought about or made that special purchase you've anticipated? Friends, if you're thinking like that, I want to tell you, you you need a redirect. There is nothing more satisfying than Jesus' kingdom coming in its fullness. And Jesus wants us to pray this prayer as part of the way by which he works in our hearts to cause us to think that way. Okay? I wonder if you see what I'm getting at here. Praying for God's name to be hallowed and praying for God's kingdom to come has the effect of tuning your heart to be more in sync with God's. This is key. Prayer is not chiefly about us getting what we want or uploading our requests to God. It's about orienting our hearts and our lives to beat for God's glory and God's purposes. Are you with me? Well, the next request is an extension of the prayer for His kingdom to come. We're to pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what does it look like for God's reign to expand on the earth? I think it looks like many things. But one thing it certainly looks like is sinners being transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Christ. It looks like gospel proclamation, saving and sanctifying sinners. This is why we want to be a part of revitalizing churches. This is why we want to be a part of planning churches. This is why we want to do our part to train pastors and elders because we want to see his kingdom come and his will to be done. That's, that's how we think about this corporately. This also has very real application to you individually as believers. We want God's will to be done in our lives more and more on a daily basis. Lord, have your way in me today. Boy, that's a good prayer. Use me today, Lord. Help my attitudes and actions and responses to be more reflective of Jesus Christ than of the old man that was crucified upon the cross with him. 
Do with me what seems best to you. I have plans for today and this week and next week, Lord, but you will direct my steps. May I honor you in all of these things. Let me serve in my post in your army with faithfulness and vigor and zeal. I also want to touch on something else. So you remember when I asked, well, why should I pray if God already knows my needs? And I said there were two answers. One was that prayer is actually a means God uses to transform us. I said there was a second one, and here it is. RGC, we should pray because prayer changes things. God acts in response to prayer. James 5.17 says the prayer of a righteous man has great power. Elijah prayed fervently that it might not rain, and it didn't. Elijah prayed again that it would rain, and it did. Why? Because humanly speaking, Elijah prayed. James 4.2 says you don't have because you don't ask. He's clearly implying that failure to ask deprives us of what God would have otherwise given us. Now, this may create tension in your mind. How can God's absolute sovereignty over all things in the universe be compatible with that? It is a paradox. How can God be sovereign and yet prayer changes things? Well, let me blow your mind. Scripture has other paradoxes too. God's sovereignty does not negate our being responsible for our actions. God's sovereignty does not negate our need to evangelize. God's sovereignty does not negate our need to respond to the offer of salvation with repentance and faith. There are many paradoxes in Scripture, and what we need to do with paradoxes in Scripture is to accept the seeming paradox and to live in the tension and to not hem in either truth. We need to accept them both. And besides, we all understand that God uses means to accomplish his to accomplish his purpose. Prayer is one of the means he uses to accomplish his purposes. Now let's move on to the last of the petitions. Read verses 11 through 13. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, you'll notice that these petitions focus on our needs, but it's really not just a simplistic thing, like, well, the first half of the prayer is about God, the second half of the prayer is about us. No, if you've been tracking with me, I hope that what you see is that God wants us to be caught up and enmeshed in prayer for His glory being known and His kingdom to come and His will to be done. And when we are rightly oriented like this, what happens is that we will pray for our own needs in light of our desire to see God glorified and in light of our desire to participate in making Him known. I think... that Matthew 6.33 kind of gets at this idea. Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. What are the all these things? Well, in context, it's food and clothing and shelter. 
But see the connection. We're captivated by God and his purposes, and we trust that he'll provide what we need. And since we live in a real world and we have real needs, what God does is he gives us the privilege of seeking him to meet our needs, which he promises to do. He wants us to ask him to provide for our needs. And so he tells us to ask for our daily bread. Lord, take care of me. Give me what I need to put food on the table. Give me what I need to support myself and to support my family. Lord, I'm short on money to pay the mortgage. Please help me. Lord, I need money to pay the heating bill this coming month. Lord, I want to give generously to church. Please help me so that I can be a blessing. Now, at this point, I, I do want to make sure you've not misunderstood what I've said so far. When I say that prayer is chiefly about transforming our hearts to God's purposes and glory, it doesn't mean that God doesn't want you to bring Him the most mundane, seemingly unspiritual daily needs of your life. God very much wants you to do that. He wants you to pray for your needs. He delights to hear your prayer. Believer, do not be shy to take whatever you need and ask God for those things. Ask Him to work for His glory and for your good as He provides those things for you. And then, the Lord says we should pray for our sins to be forgiven. Uh, That's actually what He means when He says, forgive us our debts. Uh, This is not praying to be released from credit card debt. Sorry. Um, Our debt is our sin debt to God. Now, how can our sin debt be paid? Only by Jesus Christ. So if you're a non-Christian here this morning, I, I have some bad news and I have some good news. The bad news is that according to the Bible, you have accumulated a spiritual debt that you will never be able to repay. God is your creator. God is your sustainer. You owe him everything. And yet you have not honored him. You have not lived for him. You have not obeyed his word. Every day you live, your sin actually accumulates your debt to God. And if this sin debt is not paid, then when you die, you will suffer the punishment of eternal separation from God in hell. But the good news is that God sent Jesus to pay the debt for sinners like you and me. Jesus lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death, rose again to life eternal, and the promise of the Bible is that anyone who turns from their sin and trusts in Him is forgiven of their sin debt. Listen to me. Your sin debt, your ginormous sin debt can be paid for by Christ. You can be right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. You can be forgiven. If you want to know more about what that looks like, I, I'm going on vacation, but I'll slow down the beginning of that vacation to have that conversation. And so too would any of our members here. 
if you want to know more about what it looks like to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But, but redeeming grace, I, I, actually, I actually don't want you to only think this applies to non-Christians. This is a prayer for the church, and this is telling us, the church, that we need to continue to confess our sins. We actually don't just confess once, we, we confess often. And why? I think this is so that you can glory in the beauty of the gospel and enjoy sweet fellowship with God. You see, when you confess your sins, please be clear, you are not doing it so that you won't go to hell as a believer. Listen to me. You will never fully and finally understand your sin or confess all of your sin. Not going to happen. For our salvation, we are depending fully on Christ's sufficient sacrifice to pay the price for our sin and our union with him by faith. It is not as though moment by moment, unless we confess our sins, we will be damned by them. Not true. No, I think in our confession of sin, we are continually being reminded of our need for the gospel and for Christ's sufficiency to save us. And we are reminded that as deep and as dark as our hearts can be, they will never go deeper than Christ's mercy displayed on the cross. And there's a surefire way to know whether or not you've really been forgiven. And it's actually if you forgive others. See, God in His grace has forgiven our sins even though we don't deserve it. And he calls us to extend that same grace of forgiveness to our brothers and sisters in the church. I can guarantee you that if you're part of the church, this church, any church, long enough, you're going to sin against your brothers and sisters, and your brothers and sisters are going to sin against you. It's about as sure as death and taxes. And when it does, how will you respond? You have an obligation to extend grace and to forgive each other. Because that's the fundamental nature of what God has done for you. He's extended grace and forgiven you. Finally, Jesus instructs us to pray for the Father to keep us from temptation. We need our Lord to guard us. We need our Lord to keep us from sin. It is everywhere And I wish it was only out there, but the reality is it's in here. And we can easily be drawn towards things that are not good for us and would destroy us. We need to pray that God would keep us from sin. Now, as most of you have memorized this prayer, you'll actually notice if you're still looking at the text that something seems to be missing. At the end of the Lord's Prayer that we recited earlier, we said, For thine is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever. Why isn't that there? Well, if you're reading in the King James, it is there. If you're reading in the NASB, it's there in brackets. If you're reading the ESV, it's at the bottom of the textual notes. Actually, the majority of the earliest and best manuscripts don't have that verse as part of the text. But I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, it's okay to pray that even if it's not part of the text, because it is certainly true. 
And its absence doesn't its absence doesn't cause the ideas to be absent. They're there in the prayer anyway. So that's Christ's answer to his disciples' request. Teach us, Lord, to pray. Christ essentially says, let your prayer reflect a desire for God's name to be magnified. Not your own. Let your prayer reflect a desire for God's kingdom to come. To come now more fully and to come later in its fullness to come amongst us in the church corporately, to come amongst, uh, come amongst us individually. And in light of these things, pour out your soul to your heavenly Father who will richly supply all of your needs. Can I suggest to you, if your prayer life struggles, might it be because it doesn't look enough like the themes present in this prayer? It might be that your prayer life struggles because your life isn't arcing as much towards God and the purposes of God and the glory of God as it should be. And if that's the case, can I just encourage you to pray about those things? Because in the very praying, the Lord will work. He will work in your heart and in your life and will continue to transform you into his image and to mold you and to shape you to be more like his Savior, his Son. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you truly give to us, as Peter says, all things for life and godliness. One of which is the, is the wonderful, glorious privilege of prayer. Would you help us, Lord? Would you help me to be a more prayerful congregation? A more prayerful man? Cause us, Lord, to live lives that reflect a desire for your glory and for your kingdom. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.